Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Saturday, April 15th, 2023. It's been 3,335 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 416 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Some quick housekeeping. It has been brought to my attention that Russian mercenary mill blogger Rybar is actually pronounced Rybar. Also, if there is among our listeners a retired U.S. military JAG who might be willing to jump on a call for an investigation we're working on, send a DM to any of our social media or an email to social at malcontentment.com. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, Ukrainian forces have started to set conditions for an upcoming counteroffensive that will start in the next 13 to 27 days, dependent on the weather. Second, we believe a large-scale Russian missile strike between April 15th and April 22nd remains possible. Third, the Russian Federation armed forces are combat ineffective and have exhausted their combat potential except in the Bakhmut operational area. Fourth, we maintain the Ukrainian defense of Bakhmut has reached its final phase, and Ukrainian forces are executing a planned retrograde operation. Fifth, Russian forces are experiencing a theater-wide shortage of non-precision artillery munitions, particularly anti-tank guided missiles, or ATGMs. Sixth, We maintain that short of using chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear, also known as seaburn, weapons, the Russian military will continue doing everything possible to capture Bakhmut, regardless of the cost. And finally, Russian white nationalism connected to the Russian Orthodox Church and senior policymakers within Russian President Vladimir Putin's orbit are fueling religious and racial tension, which is accelerating in the North Caucasus. One year ago yesterday, on April 14, 2022, after a series of denials and continuing to deny it was due to a Ukrainian attack, the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, confirmed the Black Sea Fleet flagship Moskva, a Slava-class missile cruiser, had sunk. It was the largest warship by tonnage sunk in combat since the ARA General Belgrano was torpedoed by a British submarine in 1982 during the Falkland Island War. It was the largest warship in length sunk in combat since the Japanese cruiser Oyodo, which went down on July 28, 1945. 
In Mariupol, the siege entered its 44th day, with Ukrainian forces consolidating in the city's eastern part and turning the Azovstal metallurgical factory into a base of operations. Secret resupply missions, extracting the critically wounded and sending relief troops, continued. Northeast of Izum, Russian forces started to push on the east bank of the Oskil River with heavy fighting north of Borova. Heavy fighting continued in Rubizhne and Popazna, and Russian forces heavily shelled Severodonetsk and Kremina. Russian forces attempted to advance on Avdiivka, west of Donetsk, and the Donetsk People's Republic falsely claimed Marinka was captured. Russian missiles hit Kyiv and Ivanofrankivsk. Russian State Duma Deputy Lilia Gumerova called for Ukrainian children who had been forcibly deported to Russia to be sent to special re-education camps to learn Russian. Let's get some regional updates, starting with Kharkiv. In the Dvorichna operational area, the Russian MOD reported fighting between DRG units in the area of Vilshana. Further south in the Kupiansk operational area, the Russian MOD reported fighting between DRG units in the Orlyansk area. Finally, in the Svatova operational area, the Russian MOD reported Ukrainian DRG activity in the area of Krochmalne. There was no change in the line of conflict. Moving on to the Donbass region in Luhansk. The only significant fighting in Luhansk is east of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with Russian forces concentrating their remaining combat strength in the Lysychansk operational area. The spokesperson for Operational Command East, or OKE, Colonel Serhi Cherevati, said that there were 413 artillery, mortar, and rocket strikes from Berestove at the Luhansk-Kharkiv administrative border to Bilohorivka, and seven airstrikes carried out by Russian Army Aviation and the VKS. According to Ukrainian officials, there were only two clashes along the line of conflict. There is no reason to believe that the reduction in fighting is due to the end of Holy Week and the start of Orthodox Easter weekend. Russian mercenary mill blogger Worgonzo continues to report that Russian troops attempted and failed to advance on the Kievka in what they described as intense fighting. No other reliable or semi-reliable source, Russian or Ukrainian, indicated significant combat in this area. In our assessment, this may be an old report or an exaggeration. Further south, Worgonzo also claimed there was continued positional fighting in the forested areas west of Kremina in the directions of Torske and Yampolivka, without any evidence. There were reports of positional fighting near Dibrova, and Worgonzo may be referencing the same area. In the Lysychansk operational area, a geolocated video showed that Russian forces had recaptured the heights near the chalk mine, indicating they likely recaptured the water purification plant and the area known locally, apparently, as Little Bilohorivka. We adjusted the map based on this new intelligence, with Ukrainian forces still controlling the village of Bilohorivka in Luhansk. In northeast Donetsk, in the Bakhmut operational area, Russian mercenary mill blogger Rybar repeated more false claims. Otherwise, there were only small changes to the map. Russian VKS forces largely sat on the sidelines northwest and south of the city, 
Engaging in minimal fighting after a failed attempt to advance on the T-506 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, on April 12th. The situation for Ukrainian forces remains critical. The Russian MOD reported their forces completed 62 fire missions in the operational area, and the VKS and Army Aviation completed 14 ground attack sorties and the VKS and Army Aviation completed 14 ground attack sorties. Northwest of Bakhmut, the situation is unchanged. Russian airborne, or VDV, units made no attempts to advance on Minkivka, Orikhovo-Vasilivka, Novomarkove, or Hryurivka. There were failed attacks in the direction of Bohdanivka and Khomova. In the northern part of Bakhmut, we pushed the line of conflict further north, with no indication that PMC Wagner occupies Rose Alley. There were unconfirmed reports of a limited Ukrainian counterattack, but we could not verify the claim. School 24 remains under Ukrainian control, and Rebar reported continued fighting on Oborany Street. In the center of Bakhmut, the Russian MOD and PMC Wagner made no claims of any advance, and we maintain that Railroad Station 1 is under Ukrainian control, Railroad Station 2 is contested, and the combatants continue to trade control of the grain elevators. We do not have insight into the status of the state police station, and to be conservative, we move the line of conflict through the compound, indicating it is contested. In the southern part of Bakhmut, PMC Wagner reported that fighting continued in Korsonskoho Street, and Russian forces had not breached Ukrainian defenses or reached Tchaikovsky Street. The report repeated that schools 2 and 40 and the MiG-17 area remained under Ukrainian control and countered our earlier analysis that the T-504 highway G-lock was severed and reported that the critical road was still open, with Russian forces mockingly calling it the, quote, road of death. There were no reports of significant fighting north of Ivanivsky. In the Kostyantinivka direction, Russian VDV forces attempted to improve their positions west of the Siversky Donetsk Donbass Canal in the direction of Predtechne and were unsuccessful. Slovyansk was hit by seven Russian S 300 anti aircraft missiles, which struck the residential quarter and the city park. One missile hit the center of an apartment tower collapsing parts of the upper floors. At the time of recording, eight people were killed, including a two-year-old toddler pulled from the rubble, and 21 were wounded. Five people are still missing. Five apartment buildings were damaged, as well as 20 private homes, a storage area, an administration building, a recreation center, and retail shops. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. In southwest Donetsk, in the Avdiivka operational area, heavy rain, localized flooding, and a consolidation of military resources to Bakhmut meant minimal fighting. Russian forces attempted to advance from the tree line adjacent to the H-20 highway west of Novobakhmutivka without success. Fighting continued in the no-man's land between Vodyana and Sieverne with no change in the situation. 
In Pervomaiske, Russian forces were pushed back almost to the E-50 highway, with only a toehold west of Piski. Video from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, militia channel showed a furious attack on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelsky. Ukrainian positions on the eastern edge of the hamlet were hit by TOS-1 thermobaric weapons, with a video showing secondary explosions from ammunition cooking off. At the same time, at least three armored vehicles were advancing. While the attack was better coordinated, it failed, and Russian forces retreated to their previous defensive positions. In the Marinka operational area, positional fighting for control of the rubble that once was Marinka continued along Druzhby Avenue. A Ukrainian source reported positional fighting near Vuhledar, likely in the Mikilska Dachas. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OKS, reported there were 12 vessels of the Black Sea Fleet on patrol, including two Kilo-class submarines capable of launching eight caliber cruise missiles in total. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Just kidding, there weren't really any significant developments to discuss. So let's chat for a sec. We're working on an investigation into the Russian propagandist Donbas Devushka, who is neither Russian nor Ukrainian. In fact, she lives in Oak Harbor, Washington, the U.S. state on the Pacific coast, not the U.S. district on the Atlantic coast. We are currently working to confirm her background and attempting to contact her to get her side of the story before we go to press. In the meantime, you can review our initial findings in a thread on Twitter at MalcontentmentT. Speaking of shady people on the internet, let's talk about the Russian military mobilization and Mir. Our favorite FSB colonel convicted war criminal Kremlin pariah and failed Mobik Igor Strelkov-Girkin wrote on his telegram, quote, Dear readers, as for the reports about the charges brought against me, I have not yet received any official papers from the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and therefore there is nothing to comment on in general. So far, I can only say that, regardless of the further actions of the authorities, I will behave, speak, act exactly the same as I have behaved until now. It will not work to intimidate me, but we will soon find out whether the authorities are ready to stop me. End quote. There may be a bit more to this story in an ongoing Game of Thrones that hurts my brain. Yevgeny Prigozhin has gone after Girkin using his social media channels. Prigozhin told his media arm Concord Group that even if Girkin Strelkov is imprisoned after being checked by the Ministry of Internal Affairs, he still has no chance of getting into the Wagner PMC, saying, quote, Earlier, I offered Girkin Strelkov to join our PMC. He refused, and he showed himself to be a complete coward. We don't take pansies. Getting into the colony wouldn't help him either, since we don't take prisoners from the zones now. We don't take the offended. Girkin Strelkov is a complete bastard, talker, and useless creature. Recall that the ex-Minister of Defense of the DPR is now being checked under the article on discrediting the RF Armed Forces. A Muscovite turned to the police, who were outraged by the publications of Girkin Strelkov in social networks, 
as well as his angry Patriots Club, where he openly criticizes the country's leadership. End quote. It's unclear what Gherkin will be charged with or when he'll be charged. He's suggested he could face two charges. First, discrediting the Russian Federation armed forces, basically violating the so-called don't-say-war laws. Honestly, that one is an open-and-shut case. But it's highly unlikely Gherkin would go to prison for this. Maybe a fine and don't-let-us-see-you-making-YouTubes-and-telegrams-again kind of thing. Gherkin will go quiet for a week or two, then wade back into the water and go right back to his old act. The second possibility is fraud with the collection of humanitarian aid. So the Russian Federation terminology for humanitarian aid typically means for soldiers, and could range from socks and rations to drones and weapons. The other thing we don't know, because the Russian Federation is taking over the prosecutor's office in the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, is if this is related to events of 2022, or if this is going backward to 2014. Gherkin recently faced allegations that he took vast sums of money with him in 2014 when Moscow yanked him out of the Donbass for the failures at Slovyansk and the growing heat around the downing of Flight MH17. This would be a far more serious charge in a court system with a 99% conviction rate. While Girkin has done his dog and pony show since February of last year, he's turned up the rhetoric, going directly after Russian President Vladimir Putin. Girkin has a fan base, but he also has a lot of enemies. His enemies and the people he's angered likely outnumber his supporters. The pending allegations come just days after he went after the Nevelsky Battalion, accusing the leaders of fraud and malfeasance. Based on over two dozen reports from various Mobik units from the Russian Federation, there are a group of individuals within the Donetsk People's Republic who have tremendous political and legal power that extends to the highest levels of the Kremlin. Girkin may have gone too far. This isn't the first time we've faced the loss of Girkin as a source. He was detained in August 2022 and got quiet for a couple of weeks before starting his criticism again. If you're newer to the podcast or the Situation Report, here's the important thing. Girkin is right. A lot. His predictions in the Donbass have been consistently correct. The issues that he points out and discusses are very real problems, and sometimes he points out obvious solutions that will never get executed. There has been a lot of speculation that Girkin is somehow protected. The most logical answer would be from someone within the FSB, given he was, well, is, part of that organization. Girkin loves his homeland, he's Russian, and is fully committed to the destruction of the Ukrainian government, though not the Ukrainian people or the resources of Ukraine. Our personal view, and this is opinion, is that he deeply believes that Ukraine is illegitimate, doesn't exist, and is part of Russia. He's also racist, anti-Semitic, and his war crimes go beyond shooting down MH17. So could Girkin flee to avoid arrest on the run, or turn himself into The Hague in exchange for what he knows, banking that time in a Western European prison will be vastly better than a Russian one? Our opinion, after following the man for more than a year, we don't see it. We won't rule it out, but let's put it at less than a 5% chance. 
further, he would have an incredibly hard time getting across the border. Everyone knows who he is on both sides, even when he shaved off his mustache. Silencing a high-profile voice like Girkin is a challenging political move for the Kremlin. However, Shoigu and Prigozhin are in a truce of convenience, and a good patriot is a terrified patriot. The Russian MOD needs an enemy, and for right now, it isn't so-called turbo-patriots. That is, not until PMC Wagner has been ground to dust, then, then it'll, it'll go back to being turbo-patriots. So, who is the new enemy of the Kremlin? Apparently, the League of Angry Patriots, who are, ironically, committed to seeing Russia win in Ukraine. Okay, but for realsies, thank goodness the Kremlin is not listening, because if people like Girkin had a seat at the big kids' table, Russia would be in a much better position on the battlefield. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.